Welcome everyone. Today we have Gary Wayne joining us. Gary is an incredible researcher and the author of Genesis 6 Conspiracy. And he writes about topics including the dragon bloodlines, the giants, fallen angels and the Nephilim, and really bringing an overview to the spiritual war that humanity has faced for thousands of years. Gary courageously researches and references areas that the church has largely avoided, and it's even asked people to leave over such questions in the past. And I feel Gary has created just incredible resources for us all in an area where there was such a huge lack of solid biblical information and study. And we can see by the popularity of Gary's work, there are so many thirsting for this knowledge and to finally be able to understand the history that's within the Bible. And it's a history that is just so essential for us to comprehend in order to decode the prophecies of end times. For survivors of ritual abuse and MK Ultra mind control, Gary's work really unpacks the Nephilim bloodlines and the royal ruling class that many of us have either been born into or brought into through experiments. And it brings me much hope to just see the truth of God's word being made more accessible to people by researchers like Gary. And I pray that this will bring many souls that are lost in the new age, in paganism and in other idolatry of this world back to the truth. So welcome, Gary. Well, thank you for inviting me to your show, and I'm hoping that some of the things that we touch on today might help people connect some dots in your audience and or sort of look at things that maybe they hadn't looked at in the way that we're going to talk about today or just answers a lot of questions that were sort of nagging. So my uh, my mission is to get information out there and to connect dots for people. So... Uh, I'm here to talk about whatever is sort of relevant to the audience as opposed to what my agenda might be. I do, you know, about five or six shows a week. So <laughs> whatever the audience is wanting to to learn more about, that's kind of what I want to try and talk about. Wow, that's a hectic schedule, Gary. You're such a, you're just so passionate about getting this information out. And I know from reading your book and watching your interviews, it's connected so many dots for me. And yeah, I would love to start with just asking, like, how did you get into this line of work? Because I know it's been like a 40 year journey for you and you can really see it just through the depth yeah. of knowledge that you share. It's getting to be closer to a 45 year journey now. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I would not have imagined this type of uh, path and even when I did sort of start back to, uh, you know, the path to, to Christ and to, to the Bible and trying to understand things in that perspective, I didn't think I would go where I ended up going. Um, but that's, you know, if you're listening, you get there sooner as opposed to later. And I'm a bit kind of a stiff-necked uh, contrarian, so sometimes I don't listen quite as well as I ought to, and I should hear hear things a little bit better when it's, it's designed to help me. So it started when uh, in about 1980 or 81, and uh, on a Friday night, and we we're having beers. My brother was over, and one of his friends were over, and as we get later into the night, they're starting to talk about Antichrist and false prophet and some things I was, fam yeah, some really kind of weird sort of stuff. And 
I was familiar with Antichrist because of the Damien Antichrist movies in the 70s, but I wasn't really familiar with the false prophet or some of the other things that they were talking about. And then one of them leaned to me and said, if you have the courage, uh, we have a book for you to read. So I thought they might be thinking maybe the Bible or, or something like that. And I said, yeah, I have courage. So and I had no idea in terms of the book that they said I should read. And it was a author by the name of Hal Lindsey, uh, who wrote the late great planet earth in the late sixties or early seventies. And it's a prophecy book. And he wrote, he was a prolific writer at that period of time and wrote a lot of bestsellers. And so I read the book and the prophecy in there scared the socks off of me. So but I'm a contrarian, so I want to verify everything for myself just because he said that's mm-hmm. what it said or he said that's what it means. I want to verify things for myself. So the only way to do that was to get a Bible, uh, you know, and I, I think I got a King James Bible and I went to the verses and, you know, it seemed to be accurate, but I didn't know whether it was in context. And so he was pulling passages from the old testament and the new testament so i'm going well the only way i'm going to figure this out is i have to read the bible from front to cover to get a better understanding here and so i started reading the i probably haven't said this much because i don't like to i do talk tough on the kgv a lot of times but i'm not trying to insult but for me i couldn't read it um, I would, I mean, I could read the words, but after a page, it was just going to mush and it wasn't sinking in and I would restart and I thought there's got to be a better version. So I talked to my brother on it and he said, well, I've got a 1973 NIV. It's written in modern English. Uh, and you know, it's, it's probably what, what you need to be able to, you know, start to understand what you did. So that's what I came back to to christ with because i couldn't understand the baconian english (laughs) and so um when i started to do that then i started to read and i read it all the way through and i thought okay there's so much information in there i i can't remember half of it or 10 percent of it and i still am in nowhere land in terms of can i verify what hal is talking about so then I thought I need to log all of the prophecy narratives. And I had no idea how many there were because I just thought there's different topics. I had sort of identified that. So I got out some highlighters. Well, you run out of highlighters pretty quick. <laughs> okay, that's not going to work. So then I had to develop files and just, you know, have a sheet of paper in each one and put the verse down and what it was about on each particular sort of prophecy strain, which was very helpful, manual, but very, very helpful. And then I had, obviously, I had to add more files because, again, I had no idea. And as I'm going through reading the Bible, every time I get to Genesis 6 and I'm going, giants, I'm going, <laughs> I don't want anything to do with that. Whatever that is about, <laughs> I don't want any part of. But the thing is, it never sort of goes away. And you're reading about them in different ways as you're going through the Old Testament, even though a lot of people may not realize all the passages that are denoted to to giants. So, And trying to log all the different prophecy trails, you never get everything the first time through or the second time through. I'm having to go through many times through. So at one point, I decide I'm going to put into a separate file everything to do with angels, demons, 
giants and there's a connection there. I just don't know what it is, but I'm going to have to deal with this if I think there's something to this prophecy thing. And of course I do. So then I have to learn about these giants. And so I dig in, dig into all of that and I get all the passages that I am aware of. And of course I miss a bunch because I don't know some of the names of some of the giant tribes. And I haven't made a connection that None of the giant tribes have patriarchs in the table of nations or the genealogies. So that took a while to sort of get there. And so from about 1980 to about 1996 is the first part of the research. And then I thought, well, I've got a lot of material here. And in about 1992 or 93, I started to use a typewriter. Um, still wasn't on a computer and at that time. And so I started to create binders of prophecy narratives with uh, passages. And I thought there's maybe 12 or 15 books a person could write out of this information. But I don't know whether or not I can get published. Um, I don't know whether or not I know how to write a book. I don't have a university education. I've not gone to seminary school. I don't have, I didn't have a platform. And I wasn't considered an expert in the field, but I had this passion that I needed to do this. And so I thought, I want to write a short book. And it sort of came to me. And I realized <laughs> not really, probably not my idea, <laughs> but why not write a book? And I thought it would be a short book um, <laughs> to connect. Genesis six to what happens in Revelation where you have these mighty men that aren't really um, described in a way that you would connect them back to the giants, but there's very odd language. You have demons, you have fallen angels, and you have all of this prophecy. So I said, there's got to be a connection there. So maybe I'll write a book to 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 connect that. So you, you're going to deal with the giants. Now you have to figure out, well, it's going to be a little bit larger because I have to write about the flood because the flood uh, is part of the story. The giant creation is in the preamble to the flood story. So then I wrote that. I wrote 10, 11 chapters and did it pretty quickly. One of the things, though, that I realized, and I knew it all along, is that because I was a history buff and a mystery, not a mystery, a mythology buff when I was young, and I would read everything I could get my hands on, I understood that these were accounts that were told about in other cultures, the flood and the giants. And they're always connected. And so I thought, well, why don't I throw in for Christians? Well, I'm going to see whether I can get published, you know, some accounts that are in there. So I put in those different passages, whether it's from Sumeria or from Egypt or from uh, Greece or where have you, because you have these things all around the world as one of the common legacies. And I thought, that's really going to help because Christians are going to say, hey, there's parallel accounts from a polytheist lens of the same events, but talking about the same events nonetheless for some sort of veracity. And I thought, but I don't give any context on that. Um, I can cite sources, but I don't give the reader, particularly Christians who don't know much about those um, cultures and religions, I need to read the religions. I need to read the Vedas. I have to read all the Gnostic Gospels. I have to read uh, the Book of Mormon. I have to read all of these different books, the Popol Vuh, and there's a big list of books. I and So I did. And so I understood very quickly the differences between polytheism and 
in monotheism and who the gods were in the angelic realm as the fallen host of heaven. And but then I understood as I as I, I was connecting that is that the history of those nations and the religion were part of the fabric and the hierarchy and the culture and that this was a knowledge cult in polytheism and that the mystery schools come out of the development of the mystical religion from the original seven sciences uh, of Enoch, son of Cain. And uh, Cain as well was obviously a big contributor on that. That merged with the fallen um, angels knowledge, the angelic technology, and it's the same story all around the world. So they had to learn about these mystery schools because that's how the educated elite who dominated everything from the kingships to the nobility class to the army to the teaching class to the uh, religious class and only a small entrepreneurial class of blacksmiths and bakers and that sort of existed tailors and then the poor and the slave class as the fourth class which is again a standard all around the world and that all of these rulers took their bloodlines back to a celestial mafia godfather as i like to call mm-hmm. them or the fallen angels or the nephilim and so I, I after i learned that i realized that out of these mystery schools comes the secret societies just as you have those secret societies and initiatory groups as part of the universities all around today. It's because it's the same organizational structure. So then I had to learn about secret societies, and I didn't know anything about <laughs> secret societies. So 1996 to about 2013, when I thought I was ready to publish the book and then try and get published, so it took me another couple of years to get published. It's very difficult to do. And, uh, yeah, so it turned into, by all that other information, went from, like, 10 chapters to 98 chapters. You might as well say 100 because there's a preface and an epilogue. Uh, and I shortened that book because it's about 800 pages <laughs> uh, from about 1,150 pages just to try and get it to a size that people might take the journey to read and to actually get published. So it was a long process. And I write in the preamble that I stopped many times thinking, this is crazy stuff. Nobody's going to read it. Nobody's going to buy it. I don't want to do this anymore. But you just keep getting drawn back in. There's no peace until you until until you continue and if i couldn't find what i wanted um then it would come to me and then there was one book i put in right in the end because i absolutely refused to do it but i had done the research on it and i if i was going to use that particular religious book um i wanted the best english translation which turned out to be the oxford translation and that was for the quran and i absolutely did not want to include it in in my book but i realized i kind of have to if i want to present the other views for christians that they can understand and that they're all talking about similar events so i did i was actually quite surprised um with what was in the Quran. I, and I wouldn't say that about the hadith that i also read but um those those are not good um but uh, the quran is uh, runs amazingly consistent with the bible and even though it's not taught that way so i thought i'd put some of that into the book which kind of also makes it a little bit controversial and contrarian as well so i get a lot of people saying well 
the Quran says this. And I'm going, did you get that off the internet? <laughs> and I'll say, it doesn't matter where I got from. It says this. I said, okay, here's the real passage. And here's the rest of it that's around it. Here's the context. And then here's the same passages that it's talking about in other books. And I'm not a Quran expert. I just know how to get around um, those kinds of books to be able to to find stuff. And the digital Kindle versions and things like that are, are really good for that. And so all I try and do is I don't promote it. I'm just saying that it's not what the Islam uh, imams are teaching. And they're using it for power and control, which is most all religions okay. do so. And I, and and I tell people, you know, and I don't usually go down this chain about about the Quran, but here's my position on the Quran: is as if it it doesn't matter to me whether it's it's scripture or not. What it does do is say the Bible is perfectly accurate, regardless what the imams say, uh, and that there is the word. There is the Messiah. There is uh, the the one true God, and it supports the virgin birth and Mary and all things sort of important. And so, whether or not it's it's scripture or not um, is not really the point. I used it because it was relevant to the book. And if I was an if I was a Muslim and I read the Quran as a Muslim, without the brainwashing from Islamic uh, hierarchy, I would become a Christian. Wow. The Bible, to me, the Quran should, ought not to be by its instructions defined by the Hadiths, which are man-made documents, and they're different in each Sex. So you can't just say, I'm going to read the Hadith. You have to get all the sects, and there's more than one, <laughs> and you have to read them. And they they manipulate it for their agenda in each of the, the sects. And so, yeah, I, I, I would become a Christian because then I would use the Bible as the base to define the Quran because everything that's in the Quran, if you want to know what it's really talking about, it's reaffirming what was talked about in the Bible. But, of course, the powers that be can't let that happen. So you have to put Christianity against Muslims, and it's pushed from both sides. Wow. I do really love that in your book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, that you've really just brought together so many other books and so many other documents that actually support the biblical story yeah. and it, it's quite an incredible perspective just to see this creation story and these you know the truth of what the bible has given us yeah you know, and that's in that's what i was trying to do, and that's what i was trying to do and it was you know the the publishers were saying you might get yourself into <laughs> you know a conundrum where you're getting everybody mad from you and and you're trying to make that sort of balance right mm-hmm. um but what i wanted what I wanted to do was not just a book for Christians, but I wanted if other people who weren't within Christianity didn't quite understand things that they would see that there's a commonality, not only with Christianity, but with other cultures and other history. And maybe because there's so much in there that's about the Bible that they might be encouraged to read the Bible. So it was a, you know, bias written from a Christian perspective but it was designed to try and catch the attention of people outside of Christianity as well. And what happened with that 
with the first book, which permitted, because I said I would never write a sequel, um, but the first you book. Never say never write. <laughs> yeah, never say never. I should, I should know better after the first experience. So what happened after publishing this book and, and pushing it sort of uphill for, for, you know, a year or so before it started to catch on and get the people to actually listen to what you're, you're saying and bringing down the barriers and learning how to do that is that I started to get a lot of questions coming in, whether it's from email or on social media or on shows. And I discovered there was a tremendous angst and a tremendous thirst for knowledge from the Christian community. And what they were saying was, we really like your research. We really like how you've connected the dots. But what hasn't been done, and as unique as the first book is, we need somebody who can write us a book and provide us information as to all the information that is in the Bible about giants, about prehistory, about uh, angels, about demons, about fallen angels, about prophecy. And you, of course, you can't get that all into one book. So, uh, but that's what the sequel is, 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 is Genesis six conspiracy part two. That's, uh, hopefully it'll be out right away. It's at the printers. It's got a March 12th release date, but we should beat that. It's targeted at Christians to give people the arguments that they need and the information that they need so that they can go to it when somebody says, well, you know, that's crazy talk. You've taken that out of context. You've got all of that information in front of you and I put the put it as footnotes instead of endnotes because there's so much information in the foot in the footnotes that's on the same page and you can go to those areas and make your arguments and take them back to people whether or not they want to hear them or not what they can't say is it's not biblical and so that's what this book was all about and in the meantime when I'm doing that through the pre prehistory I'm identifying the words that you need for context and definitions for the allegories in end-time prophecy. And then I lay down a chronology for prophecy in the last couple of sections. So it is a shorter book. doesn't have everything because you can't do it. That doesn't mean there's not another one coming in behind, uh, which will go into some other areas. Um, but what it does do is, is cover off a, a, a lot of the material. It gives you a chronology and a way of approaching prophecy that I think you can rely on. Incredible. And I, and I say that because there's every approach that's out there on prophecy has to do a couple of things to make their preconceived agenda um, work. They have to reimagine scripture and they have to ignore inconvenient passages. Those are two red flags. Everything's got to fit. And there's only one way to do that. Incredible, Gary. I look forward to your next book as well. Like I, your your existing book just rarely leaves my desk. I put it away and then I'll have a survivor ask me, oh, what's this about this bloodline? And I'm like, it's back. <laughs> but it's, okay. it's just such an incredible resource and I love the way you've chaptered it and each chapter has references. So, you know, we can go into it in more detail. But yep. I would love to just go back to you mentioned uh, the mystery schools and the fallen sciences and I think that's really crucial for our audience of um MK Ultra survivors and SRA survivors to to grasp as well because 
a lot of the spiritual technology, the fallen angel technology that's used in our programming comes back through those bloodlines and and through those mystery schools, which, I mean, we see them portrayed today within within the new age. So it's kind of like a self-initiation system these days. And, you know, the Egyptians and the Mayans are all glorified as being enlightened and ascended. But, yeah, I would love um, for you to share just some of the fallen angel, um, you know, technology that was, it was actually brought to the women first, which is interesting as well. Yeah, through the uh, the wives of some of the watchers, this is, I would say, the second part of the information. So the base information comes from from the polytheist uh, records, and particularly the Gnostics um, of Europe with their Polychronicon and the secret societies, which are one and the same. Um, and in their history, Cain... Uh, inherits knowledge from Adam and Adam is taught knowledge in Eden that goes from the Nile to the Euphrates. So this is a big patch of land. It's not a garden. Like this is multiple countries. It's almost continent like. And he's running an agricultural venture unlike anything that's been done in that world to that time. And so he's growing crops, he's growing fruit trees, orchards, he has crops. So when you take that back to the Hebrew language, it comes out very strong that that's what's going on there. And there's just one of him. And then he gets a partner. Now there's two, because, you know, obviously two could manage that pretty easily. But to do this, you're going to need knowledge. And that's the polytheist perspective, is, is that God taught Adam a ton of knowledge for the sciences to be able to do this. And so this is the knowledge that's passed on to Cain, Abel, and then later Seth. And Seth keeps the knowledge uh, through his bloodline to honor the God of the Bible. But Cain obviously is not quite as happy with God being ostracized and sent away. And so he's going to start to use this knowledge for self-interested purposes and he's going to start to follow the fallen angels and worship them and then his firstborn son is Enoch and people need to keep in mind there's two Enochs in the book of Genesis one that I label Enoch the evil and I kind of catch people off guard with the introduction to this book because I don't quite make that clear till a little bit further on that there's actually two of them, but that's the point. I understood that people didn't understand there was two Enochs and they get conflated. And then there's the holy Enoch that was taken to heaven. That's the son of Jared. So two Enochs to keep in mind. And Enoch is the one son of Cain who develops these, this knowledge that Adam learned into seven disciplines that are the seven sacred sciences. And they're designed to do essentially four things. And you might see that in the seven liberal arts today that's in, it's immersed in the degree system and ancient polytheist architecture and everything in there is related to the God. So the four things that they're trying to do is one is lead people away from God. They don't care how or why, but it's designed to lead people away from God. So that's why when you see seculars or evolution or tactics like that, it's a polytheist tactic because it goes to the first goal lead people away from God no matter what. And the second thing is is to not give God credit for anything. 
but he didn't create all things. He didn't create the angels. And the third thing is to slander and degrade God at every opportunity. Now, the fallen angels don't do this. They use their spirit's offspring and their followers to do this because they know the power of God. So they use humans and the hybrids to do that. And the fourth thing is, is to honor their pantheon of God. So all the buildings are in honor of them. All the imagery is in honor of them. And so those are the things that they're, that they're trying to do. And they use an interpretive approach, which is how they approach the Bible so that they can change the meaning. So anybody with an interpretive approach, my advice is to get your red flags up and look for manipulation because that's what it's designed to do. And so this is the knowledge that is being developed for the first number of generations. But as they develop, they're getting closer and closer to the fallen angels, and you're starting to see this more and more knowledge being provided. And this knowledge is provided from the gods around the world in, the, in polytheism as well. So it's the wives in the book of Enoch that receive some of the most significant knowledge um, that as, as they're almost becoming an allegorized um, mother goddess, uh, earthborn goddess um, in that sort of event. And understand that in the secret societies, in the ancient understanding is the mother goddess might be actually a little higher than the uh, the male patriarchal goddess. Yeah. And so when you start to see some of the really important allegories, you have things like the hive mind with the queen bee. So to sort of represent that um, and the, the, things of telepathy and hive mind that would go along with those uh, people of that same gens as an LB gens or a Julia gens uh, from specific patriarchs. So this is the knowledge that is going to take the seven sciences to a whole level we haven't caught up to yet. And that this knowledge was able to build things like the pyramids or Machu Picchu or all of the great architecture with sacred geometry, celestial alignments, um, earth ratios, all sorts of things to honor their gods, because that's what they do with this this imagery that we can't do today with an accuracy that they do. Fine. And and if they could do that, what else could they do with this this angelic technology? And why is that important? Because in Ecclesiastics, it says that nothing is new under the sun. What was will be again. And we're just now catching up to that knowledge with, again, I think a resurgent of the development of angelic technology that is preparing us for the end time. And so what we see in this super advanced knowledge is, I think, pure angelic technology of old that uh, paraded the world into the first apocalypse by water, uh, led by the giants and the bloodlines. And uh, it's going to happen again. And they've been trying to do that ever since the flood, ever since the other watchers, the offspring gods, ruled immediately after the flood likely created more giants and in the, in the new book i show that although i'm still open to the idea of survival as well um and that and we can talk more about that survival issue just as why i'm a little i still leave a, a crack open there um and that those 
gods like Baal, son of El, like Zeus, son of Kronos, like Anki and Enlil, son of Anu, or Osiris and Isis. These are all offspring gods who rule after supposedly they killed the parent gods. Well, they're immortal. You can't kill them. But they went, did go to the pit prison. And for the same crimes, those offspring gods shortly after the flood also were sent to the pit prison, which is why in the Ugaritic text, for example, you've got the Raphaim, the Rapiu, or the Rapiam as they're transliterated out of Old Semitic, are trying to bring Baal and Ashtaroth back to create new giants because they have a fertility issue. There's something different about the post-Diluvian giants, which is really important to sort of understanding things. So, yeah, this is what we're just catching up to, that if nothing is new under the sun, what was will be again. We have to understand everything about prehistory to understand what's going to happen in the end time, unless we're going to be deceived because the delusions will be and the deceptions will be that great. And, of course, Jesus provides that warning in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and in the book of Luke. So you have the days of Noah. The end time will be like the days of Noah. It's one of the three overarching signs to the sequential chronological order of events that he's providing. And it's the exact same words copied down in Greek, translated into English as what was recorded in Genesis 9.29 when it says the days of Noah were 600 years before the flood, 350 years after the flood. And we need to know everything about that period because we're going to see that again in some form, in some manner. Yeah, wow. Incredible, Gary. And just reading the Bible in those times or reading the Bible about those times, we see so many similarities to what's happening now. I mean, you know, speaking with SRA survivors and mind control survivors, you know, many of them have been involved in Nephilim breeding projects and, you know, these, the offspring gods that you're talking about then, like Osiris and Isis and Zeus, like they're all principalities that are used to enslave us within our mind control programming. So it's, it's just, um, like you said, nothing new under the sun. And it, yeah. it's very interesting um, what you pointed out about, you know, the matriarchal, you know, power or, um, you know, the women within these bloodlines actually having a lot of spiritual power. And I'd, lo- I'd love to touch on that because we've been unpacking um, the way Mother Earth is used in survivor programming. And a lot of that goddess programming is built off, you know, an original wound in a child where a handler, often the father, you know, begins to violently abuse the child and there's a hate created towards men. So this witchcraft comes out in survivors, um, really started by hate of men. And when you look at what witchcraft is and that manipulation in our world, it really comes down to, you know, women being actually higher than the patriarchal system. So I, I'd love to um, you know, unpack some of your research there, Gary. Yeah, I think probably the best analogy for this is, is, is Gnosticism. So in Gnosticism, people are familiar with the 12 archons that they say the God of the Bible is one of those, uh, as was uh, Satan uh, in only with obviously an angelic name as a first as opposed to his degraded title. Uh, I think it's Hale-El, Gadriel, several other names, but uh, because he would have had multiple names. But 
where did these 12 archons come from in polytheism? They come from Sophia, the mm. female goddess of wisdom, uh, who somehow creates these 12 archons from this nebulous sort of life force of, of the universe. So you're encapsulating a lot of the uh, entire sort of hegemony of the uh polytheist pantheon in that and so sophia is the is the greatest of the mother goddesses who produces the original 12 archons who are also going to produce other um angelic beings by intermarriage and also create the giants uh that's the spurious offspring as demigods so sophia is you know the greek word for wisdom and knowledge and so the knowledge is, you see, being passed down through that allegorical mother goddess that we talked about with the wives of the watchers is part of that layers of sort of understanding. And that uh, Sophia is the word that's in philosophy, meaning the love of wisdom or really the love of Sophia, which what? is the guiding principle uh, and the arbitrator of the seven sciences, which is the theology of Sophia. And so it places Sophia at the top of the knowledge cult. And doesn't mean that there aren't partners for this, but in this case, it's this nebulous life force that I think probably is like Satan, as opposed to uh, being part of the 12 archons um, just makes more sense. Just as Satan sits above the council of the gods in Psalms 82, uh, he would be above the standard pantheon. And then the seven wandering stars of the Bible, they kind of reflect parts of that authority that Satan has as the god of this world. And so when we understand that Satan would have a counterpart it starts to make sense, just as in the pantheons, you have a, a female and a male. And in the representatives, represent, representations of those in the lower, as in the seven wandering stars or the seven major gods, you know, represented by the, you know, the planets of, like Saturn and, and Jupiter and Mars and all the ones that go into that, including the moon, you have... Uh, a female goddess that is not only a fertility goddess, uh, but a lot of the times a goddess of war as well. Mm -hmm. And several different sort of aspects uh, as part of that, that uh, hierarchy or hegemony uh, of, of how that sort of works. And most people just look at the male with uh, sort of that sort of lens, but clearly as you get higher up in the secret societies and in Gnosticism, they value the mother goddess even more. And so that's the mother goddess as mother, mother of the earth, as, as you're talking about, the one that provides life. And in that understanding, that's a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit, which is why anything coming through Sophia and Gnosticism is going to be a sin against the Holy Spirit in terms of what you might do to manifest that knowledge. So anything to do with counterfeiting or worshiping a false um, 
Holy Spirit or uh, covenants or, or, or violations against the laws of creation, which the Holy Spirit provides the life for, it starts to cross that threshold. And so at the Eastern sort of understanding of this female goddess level of all knowledge is the Atma and the Atman in the Vedas and sometimes called the Brahman. Mm -hmm. And this is the source of all knowledge and it works interdimensionally and it works through providing this knowledge in an invisible, unmeasurable particle that is different than ones that we can measure at the quantum level that has the ability to transmit all knowledge by merging with a particle you can measure, sending that information through all dimensions instantaneously through quantum entanglement. And when people are talking about the divine essence, that's the Atman. When people are in yoga trying to get be able to astral plane or get in touch, that's the pro, one of the rituals to try and get in touch with that. And that is the source of all knowledge and is the same as Sophia. Wow, Gary. That just, you know, your reflection on, you know, that, deception of the counterfeit you know you, we hear that in the new age when people are like you know pray to the universe or thank the universe like it's just such a tricky deception you know to it take is. away the creator like god's creation you know and focus us on you know something else and it's an age-old deception isn't it it is it is and uh yeah be one with the universe Sounds so lovely, love and light, right? But it's so cunning, so very cunning. The universe will provide. Yeah, yeah. So these are all things that have infiltrated, um, you know, Christianity. And it's understandable because this world is a sea of polytheism. And Israel was like an island, and Christianity is like speckles of islands throughout this sea. Uh, and this is a world run by the fallen angels for a period of time. So everything that we're swimming in is polytheist. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, another thing I would love to ask about is I, I really enjoyed reading your chapters about the fairy uh bloodlines in your book and I think that's an area that is uh, there's a lot of deception around obviously with the new age today you know they're promoting nature worship and you know like invite fairies in and talk to the elementals and you know we've been given this perspective that these are really harmless and they actually come up in survivors programming so just as much as um our programming is often bonded with fallen angels to keep it active and they have to be booted out. Like, thank, thank you, God, praise God for deliverance. Um, but quite often it's fairies and that's really deceptive because, you know, we've been brainwashed into Disney with Tinkerbell and the fairy godmothers. Um, so these can be really tricky for survivors to kind of confront and let go of because, yeah. they're like, oh, it's just a fairy. It's not dangerous. But yeah, I would yeah, love to speak on the Nephilim origins of the fairy. Sure, and one of the reasons why it's seductive to hand to hang on to it, or for Christians to um, take in that sort of 
belief in and and like the stories is that the dualism of polytheism even within the religion as opposed to the macro good against evil satan against god is you have the white hats and black hats they use you have white witches and evil witches you have good nephilim and and the white ones or the good ones are the ones that seemingly have humankind's better interest at heart that's the lie what they don't tell you is they still worship the same pantheon of gods they still have the same ambition to enslave humankind and preferably wipe them from existence which is what they were created to do uh, by the giants so yeah, I understand it, but we need to understand that just because one side is a little bit nicer to us doesn't mean that uh, they're not going to still could. be smiling as they're slaughtering us because it's the same goal. So I know that sounds a little harsh, but it's to make that point. So there is in the allegorical understanding of bloodlines of the royales, and I'll start that these will be of the nobility class of the royales, or as I call them, rex deus or rex deus in my book. Um, they, that means kings of God. It means they are a bloodline from a specific patriarch of Nephilim or Raphaim and of a specific uh, godfather or uh, fallen angel. And those genealogies is where they fit in terms of how pure they are and how the scioning or grafting in of those bloodlines give them a more ennobled presentation to the genealogy. So once we sort of understand that, then we can understand there's a matriarchal bloodline and a patriarchal bloodline. But before we get into that, we should understand that their origination of the matriarchal bloodline is the male god and or the patriarchal and the matriarchal is the female goddess, right? So Tiamat in Sumerian is part of that lineage of the original matriarchal bloodline from a heavenly fairy, just as fairies mm-hmm. come to Ireland from other planets uh, after losing a war and they create Tuatha de Danan, fairy elven people as the spurious offspring. And there was, you know, a head, uh, fairy that rebelled originally. So everything's the same. It's now just in the fairy sort of mythos, but this is the matriarchal understanding. So Lilith would be an offspring of Tiamat in the genealogy and very close to the top. But so she's either a demigod or somehow a angelic light being created from two angel beings and through their physical nature in the physical world. You could look at that um, both ways. And so that's the fairy bloodline. And so fairies are an allegory for this matriarchal bloodline. And you have owls, which is the other allegory. So just as... Lilith is understood at the top as a fairy queen. She's also an owl queen. Yeah, that's right. right? Good. And Lilith so, or evil, like she's one of the worst demons I think you can run into. Ugh. Yeah, connected to the vampire mythos yeah. and everything like that. So incubus and all those sorts of things. On the male side, you have the dragon allegory uh, from the seraphim angels. Yeah. 
with the serpent faces as an angelic dragon. Seraph means a fiery serpent-faced angel that works amongst the fiery stones as ministers before God. And uh, these are the watchers of Genesis 6, part of them, most, and they're the ones who did most of the procreation, which is why you have all of this serpentine imagery uh, within the bloodlines, just why you have all of that fairy imagery within the bloodlines as well, because it's just reflecting the male and the female sort of aspect. And we know they're watchers because they deal with governance, so both religious and for legal. And they're the watchers that are sent in Daniel 4 uh, to uh, make decisions from the throne on the governments and who's going to be king. And so we do get watchers in um, in the Bible. Um, and people say there aren't watchers in the Bible. Yes, it's in there three times in the book of Daniel, Daniel 4. And it comes from the Hebrew word ayir. And when we get the satyr gods, these are degraded seraphim goat gods that Azazel goes from seraphim to goat god after degrading as a Satan was degraded. And Azazel would be one of the Satans that are described in the book of Enoch. That is a hairy goat god. And it's it's a combination word of Sarah and Sa and a few other words that mean hairy and goat. And Ayer, which means watcher, so hairy goat god watcher for satyr is in Isaiah 13 and 14 and some of the devil goat gods that are talked about in the Old Testament as you take that back to Hebrew. So you have these uh, these two allegories that come down, uh, one being the owl and the fairy on the matriarchal and dragon um, and, and or serpent, you could look, define that as the same, and raven mm. as in a bird as well. So, and so when you have uh, these allegories coming down, you need to understand that anything to do with the raven and the dragon is a patriarchal allegory and fairy and owl are. So that's why you have fairy queens. Yeah, of course. Right. And if you look at King Arthur, you have... Arthur, who is a descendant of the Tuatha de Danann of the fairy race, son of Uther Pendragon, the head dragon. And so he's the dragon king as the divine representative on the earth as a spurious offspring. And then you have the fairy queen Guinevere as the mother goddess. And it's all sort of being sort of reflected in there. So if we if we understand that, after the flood, there's a difference between the giants before the flood, both in size and in fertility. They could multiply with ease before the flood, but after the flood, they've got a fertility issue. And in the Ugaritic text, the Rephaim are trying to bring back Baal and Ashtaroth from the pit prison to create more Rephaim because they have a fertility issue. And we get that from, and I cover this off in the new book, we get that from the terrible ones that are talked about in the King James Version Bible that surface in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 32, Isaiah 25, and a branch of these terrible ones who did horrible things on earth as these bloodline kings. And the worst of those ones are in the sides of the abyss, in the abyss prison, along with the mighty L 
that are in there. Uh, and they're talking to Pharaoh in this passage in Ezekiel 32. And terrible ones is the Hebrew word erit. And erit, um, and as ones in plural would be eritim. So nephil would be singular, nephilim would be plural for the giants. And these are the ones that are described in terms of like powerful and strong and a whole bunch of things that uh, are associated with giants, but also childless and fertility issues. And it's not that they couldn't produce ovaries or semen. It was a female issue. And one of the reasons why after the flood, you have a shortage of female giants. So, and I write in the first book that if you're, if, that when they start a new dynasty, they're going to sigh on a pure blood dragon bloodline and a pure blood fairy bloodline with an emphasis on the female bloodline because they're so rare. Yeah. And it's that rarity, uh, effect that there's so few women females that they're producing is why they're going to have to, after the flood, intermarry most famously with the nine patriarchless Canaanite tribes like the Amorites, um, like the Hivites, like the Jebusites to produce uh, hybrid giants unless they go extinct. Wow. They have no issue. They have no other, they have no other uh, way of solving it. If they don't intermarry and then produce a tight knit set of bloodlines within that, and then have to marry outside about the fourth generation, as I recall that law that they put in for the royal bloodline so that they prevent hemophiliac disease or Habsburg lock, Habsburg uh, jaw disease or a whole list of other issues. Um, they're going to have to bring in some outside bloodlines to keep that DNA sort of new. And so they're going to lose their looks, their size over time because they had to intermarry. So, but you have those two groups of giants shortly after the flood. Um, and the uh, hybrids were, and I cover this off in the new book, they were seven to nine feet tall versus 11, 12, you know, let's say 10 to about uh, 19 feet tall after the flood. And biblically, we don't get one that's 19 feet. Uh, you get, uh, you get Goliath at 11 feet, 3 inches, and then you get Og based on his bed size, who would have been somewhere between 12 and 14 feet. 12 foot is a common size like Orontes or Achilles in Greek mythology. But Gilgamesh is 11 cubits and king of Uruk. And from a female mother goddess, um, son of uh, Nin, the mother goddess, and uh, Lugalbanda, the king of Uruk, um, and he's a second incursion giant, two-thirds God, one-third human, and he is 11 cubits tall and four cubits wide. That's 19 feet tall, being on the rail cubit, and seven feet wide. Uh, absolutely a monster. So way bigger and and a bit different because he's a, and I talk about this, he's, he's a dark-haired giant versus the blonde hair, red hair, blue eyes, hazel eyes, pale skin. They still have pale, pale skin, but they've got dark eyes and they've got dark hair and these big beards, just as Gilgamesh is depicted that way, just as Nimrod is depicted that way. And it comes from a different watcher. Right. So the appearance of these giants was actually related to the angelic order that 
the fallen angelic order that they came from. Is that right? Yes. So one of the things that um, uh, I explain in book two, particularly for Christians, is how does a spirit being reproduce with a physical being to produce a demigod, which is defined as the offspring of a god and a human female or a goddess and a human male in polytheism. Well, they do that through being able to create a body, and a body that can hold their spirit, and they can manifest that, and they can do that in any sort of gender. And we get this from a couple of sources biblically, that habitation that the fallen angels left in Jude 1.6 is the Greek word oikotarian, and it means a dwelling place for the spirit. So they left their dwelling place for the spirit in heaven, and they required a new one in the physical world if they wanted to interact physically. Mm-hmm. And so a dwelling place for the spirit is a body and the soul in the physical world and the spirit that comes from heaven. And we also get that word used one other time in 2 Corinthians 5.2 for the house in heaven. And that's talking about our earthly home and our heavenly home. And that's the, again, dwelling place for the spirit. And there's two different dwelling places for the spirit. One's that's for the spiritual realm and one's for the physical realm. That will change with the resurrection because we'll have a body like Jesus that can go interdimensionally and including into heaven. So that's something that comes as a special reward with the resurrection that the angels don't have. And, we get examples of angels who can take a physical body mm. in the Bible and other different forms. So Hebrews 13, for example, talks about being nice to strangers lest you run across an angel, which means we can't tell the difference if they don't want to be known, but they're in a physical body that they can interact physically with the world. In the Sodom and Gomorrah story, we not only have the preexistent Jesus, the angel of the Lord, um, the the Melech uh, Yehovah, uh, Yehovah of the Elohim, uh, taking a form with two other angels taking a form. At first, Abraham doesn't recognize the two angels as being angels, but later understands they are, and they're eating, drinking, touching. And then these two angels go on to Sodom. So we know they can take a form. And through the pantheon, I think we know they can take any gender because if they can choose a form, but if they're representing themselves with their physical traits as they're described, that's going to pass on in the DNA that comes within that oikotarian body, and that the offspring are going to have traits through that DNA that will look like their parents. Uh, and so if they're seraphim, you're going to have serpentine looks. That's why Akhenaten you know, over a thousand years after the flood still has those serpentine kind of looks, even though there's been dilution of the, uh, of the bloodlines. And understanding this gets you, gets you to the understanding of the specific gens. So the fairy gens is one of those genses. It's the elven gens and usually part of the elby gens, as I talk about in, in, in book one. And this is that, that royal bloodline uh, that is so important uh, with them. It's also known as the gene of Isis. So you have two important allegories that are female-driven 
for that Jens, which is the start of new dynasties and the fairy godmother. Exactly. Wow. Her mother goddess. How incredible to just think, you know, that so much has been hidden within these fairy tales and these stories. And, you know, it was interesting just reflecting on, you know, how you mentioned the owl was, you know, such a predominant symbol of that bloodline as well, because, you know, we would, I would look at the Illuminati and perhaps this is Bohemian Grove. We think it's a a patriarchal, you know, a male dominated the group cult, whatever you want to call it, but you know, they're using the owl as their symbol, like Bohemian Grove. There's a huge owl and like Washington set out in an yep. owl shape. So that's worship of yep. the mother, mother bloodline, right? So the goddess. Yeah. And it's important to understand that because it's that mother goddess worship that's going to be coming back in the end time. It's going to resurface as part of the violations against the Holy spirit, which are the only sins not forgiven. And ultimately fulfilled through the mark of the beast for those who take it will not be saved from punishment forever in the lake of fire that's reserved for the fallen angels. Wow. That's so interesting that you've tied it into the Holy Spirit there. That makes so much sense because the goddess and the Kundalini spirit, which is such a big part of that, is the spiritual counterfeit, right? And unfortunately, we see that even within the churches today and, you know, yoga, like the new age. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a really important point there, Gary. Well, and, and I get if it was allegorical that you wanted to look at the Holy spirit as female, I get that. Um, but in heaven, there's no requirement for a gender, right? So these are physical world terms. There's a movement within Christianity today that wants to feminize the Holy Spirit. And what they're doing is preparing Christians, I think, to take them back to and be prepared for the mother goddess aspect coming back with the Babylon religion of the end time. And they get that through the word wisdom as it's used in um, the New Testament, which goes back to Sophia. Mm-hmm. And then um, there, there's a word... Uh, for wisdom, I'm trying to come up with the um, Hebrew word for it. I can't quite recall it, but it ends in an A-H. Um, and where you, so if you go to like Proverbs 8, for example, and if you were to take that word wisdom back, again, again, I'm sorry, I can't quite remember that word right now, but it ends in an A-H. That's the female form of the word that would not have an A-H attached to it. And so... They're saying because it's in the female form, it's saying that the Holy Spirit is a female. And just as wisdom is Sophia in the New Testament, that means the Holy Spirit is female as well. The trouble is, is that, yes, it's a female format of a word. Yes, you could make that extrapolation. But typically when you have an A-H suffix, as in instead of gibberim, it would be gibberah, which is also used. It doesn't mean female mighty ones, although it could. We just don't get much of that for applications in the Bible. But it, you know, it can also mean strength and power and words like that. And with the female suffix, it is the application of the power of that individual. So you roll that over to Elohim, which is the 
male format of El, uh, and part of the Elohim, which includes the tripart nature and the superlative nature, there's a female format of that that's used in the Old Testament that's Eloah, but used in the application of God's strength as opposed to being a female goddess. But you could have that as a female goddess. And so if you get the 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 god of fortresses in Daniel that Antichrist is going to worship, that word god is actually Eloah. It's actually a goddess. So it might be reflecting, again, that Antichrist is going to worship in secret the female mother goddess. Yeah, as the Illuminati does. And in your book you've covered, you've got a chapter on the Great White Brotherhood, and that's kind of an interesting like branch off from this goddess worship as well because that uh, particular network is, I would say, our largest one in Australia for trafficking children and mind control. And yet, you know, the Great White Brotherhood's printing all these, you know, books for the New Age and, you know, running all yeah. these programs. And, like, if you dig deep into a lot of platforms, it's behind them as well. So, yeah, I would love for you to share a little bit on the the Great White Brotherhood as well and what you've found with the connections there. Yeah, so they're the uh, physical, earthly, fleshly, part of the great white brotherhood that's the celestial mafia as well so just as there's invisible ones invisible ones that we fight against and ones of flesh and ones that aren't um they're kind of part of that and that they're the true white brotherhood is quite high up into the mysteries and and into the degrees and the history sort of goes back through heliopolis same place that Moses was educated in. And one of the reasons why Satan showed up at Moses' death because he had sworn oaths to Satan in the Pantheon and he was there to claim him. Um, So there is legal tender to that. Not that God can't trump it because he can. Just as he sent Michael to trump that, said, no, he was there for my purposes so that he could come back and uh, talk to the pharaohs on their language and know he was serious. Um, And so, yeah, so Heliopolis is the great white brotherhood, um, and it's the great religious uh, center, uh, sort of the western branch of the Magi in, in, in Mesopotamia that comes across with Mizoram and Hermes in the polytheist tradition, and with Azar as Osiris as that whole tradition goes. And so this is a place where the constitution of masonry is um, sort of sort of re-edited and reformed that was inherited from the first constitution after the flood written by Nimrod uh, at the time of Babel. And so this great white brotherhood is also sort of understood as being sort of at the Illuminati or higher. Mm-hmm. And I would say not much from the Illuminati in terms of how I would understand that Thelemic tree organization uh, of the trunk organizations. I would place the Great White Brotherhood more to the Rosicrucian level and at the top level of the Rosicrucians where you have rising ones through Freemasonry, Adept, and then Illuminati, and then into the Rosicrucians, but they're not pure in the bloodlines. They have some bloodline association. Um, but the top half will come from the families. So I would put 
the great white brotherhood at the top of the Rosicrucians and higher on that Thelemic tree. So into the committee of 300 families to the council of 33 and the invisible ones, as they initially called themselves, and then to the 13 families. And that's just the Western organizational structure. So what? Well, and then you have all the branch organizations around. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of connecting to what we would call like the Royal bloodlines, like the Windsor. Yes, so at the as well. at the at the major bloodline family level, those are the royals. They op, they populate with all of their own Masonic organizations, um, ancient royal Masonic organizations. So you might look at the Order of the Golden Fleece as one example that is held by the current King of Jerusalem with King Philip of Spain, who got it through the Habsburgs. Habsburgs have a rival claim uh, to the King of Jerusalem title and another Golden Fleece Order. But Queen Elizabeth sat on the Golden Fleece Order, so King Charles III would be sitting on that same council. And then there's a, another rival for the King of Jerusalem title through the Anjou. Uh, these are all Anjou bloodlines. Um, and the Anjou have the B uh, allegory in their symbolism as well. Yeah, and so... Um, you have the Savoy one that is sort of the third alternative that comes from the throne of Naples that the Anjou ruled as well, at, and still have claims to the Jerusalem title through that. So there's three branches of Anjou there that are part of that. Another order would be uh, the order of the Garter of the Windsor Hanover bloodline. So you have a lower level that is just for public consumption, and then you have the bloodline order atop that. Uh, you would have another one that's, I find this one very interesting just because it's so obvious in the imagery. It's the Norse bloodlines, uh, and that's the Knights of the Seraphim. Yeah. Uh, as part of, so all of these bloodlines have their own Masonic orders, and they all intersect to those. Um, and, and imagine it as a, and, and some of your people probably uh, we'll understand the, the imagery here. And I received this imagery from insiders is that this is an evergreen tree. This is a cedar of Lebanon at oh. Mount Hermon from where the assembly of gods assemble. And that it's the branches that go out from those tree trunks in a hierarchical order down that they control. So you can never make a hierarchical order with a pyramid. You may within one group, but you can't do it for multiple groups. But if you understand the Tholemic tree, that the roots go down to Hades or Sheol, where they receive their authority or power from, where their heaven is, where their gods rule from, uh, you understand the imagery and how that hierarchical thing kind of works. But it's got, it's all run by the ancient masons, the ancient royal bloodlines. And another way to look at it as well is, is that word royale. That's an ancient word. And they call themselves a royal because they have these bloodlines from a specific gens, right? And so whether it's fairy gens or um, Julia gens or whatever, they all have these genealogies. And this is the uh, – I lost my train of thought on this, but this is the, uh, the organizational structure that um, has the – the royals that has an etymology, that's where I was going with it, that you have king, which goes back to Old French for R-O-I, for Roy, 
back to Latin for like regal and words like that associated with it. And then back to rule in Indo-Aryan, which is the giant language of, of uh, the post-Diluvian epoch. And that so they are a ruler, a bloodline, and of Al, which is a transliteration of the Hebrew word El for an angel. So it just as Baal means Lord God to uh, the Gnostics and the and the Masons, it's a transliteration. Il in Sumeria, Ilu are different transliterations, and Allah would be a female form of the God talked about in um, in the Quran, but it could also be understood as the power of God too, because that's a transliteration coming off of Al. Wow, that's such good, such a good way to explain it as being the cedar tree with all of these groups as the branches off them. Because we often try and understand yes. the structure, and I think that makes makes a lot of sense. And it I would starts like- to make some sense. So yeah, so people like to say, well, where do the Jesuits fit in? Well, they're a branch of the Black nobility, and there's two different genses within the Italian Black nobility, and you also have a larger Black nobility uh, of Europe, which is part of the Rex Deus groups as well as, a, as the larger group. But they would go in because they, they are run and sponsored by the Black nobility. They would go, some people think, into the Rosicrucians, and I'm thinking it's got to be a little bit higher. I think it's got to be into the Committee of 300 or maybe even into the Council of 33 because it is they are the new Templars within the Roman church. And that's what they were created to do to replace the Templars. And they were sponsored by the invisible ones, which were originally the 33 that were trying to organize that to recreate the Templars in 1317, right after the fall. And, um, couldn't make the deal with the Pope. Uh, they had a deal, but the Pope wanted his people on it as opposed to their people. And so the rivalries got involved again and, um, so anyways, they did do that through the Mary apparitions and bringing Ignatius in and being sponsored by uh, Francis uh, Borgia, who was the Grand Master of the Montessa Order, which was the group that inherited all the Templar assets in 1307. And this is a couple of hundred years later. It's a uh, Spanish king, royal, and Basque uh, order that that they're running and Borgia is going to sponsor Ignatius and Borgia is also the is uh, the offspring grandson of a pope and another pope as well so it's part of the Borgia clan and bloodline within the church and then he through uh, through Borgia's wealth and influence in the king of Spain they're going to get the Jesuits formed as an order to replace the uh to replace the Templars, and then Borgia is going to become the third Grand Master of the uh, Jesuits in about 1565, I think is when he takes over. And then they're going to make that move to get control of the banking and move that to Switzerland, where the hospitalitors took the Templar wealth before a lot of that and started uh, the banking. So you have all of the banking over in Switzerland and under the white cross of the of the hospitalers, which were just a sister organization of the Templars. God, my history just repeats, doesn't it? 
I was it just, thinking, um, you know, <laughs> with the royals as well, like, and these noble families, like when you actually have your eyes open and you start looking at their crests and, you know, their coats of arms, there's so much symbology there, you know, the dragons, the lions, like they're really yeah. telling us that they're bloodlines. And I would love to ask you, Gary, like with the UK uh, mm-hmm. coat of arms, we've got the lion yeah. and the unicorn, um, mm-hmm. and the unicorn, perhaps the feminine, but it's interesting how the unicorns um, change up as well. So I'd, lo- I'd love to ask your breakdown on that kind of symbology, because that seems to me to be the patriarch and the matriarchal. Yeah both showing on there? Typically it would be. Um, so yes, I would go with that as well, uh, but so much more. So heraldry was created by the ancient bloodlines and the religious societies to create a standard that they could travel anywhere and that when they're in another land and the royals in that land would look at that standard and understand their bloodlines and where they come from. So when we look at, you know, the lion and the unicorn, um, also understand that the Hanovers had two unicorns. That's right. Scotland, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and of course, for people outside of the Commonwealth, the Hanovers changed their name to Windsor in World War I for obvious reasons. Um, so if this is a taciturn language in symbols, um, it's going to reflect those bloodlines. Otherwise, it wouldn't be able to, to identify. So we talked about patriarchs and matriarchs, and we talked about um, male and female, and we talked about uh, patriarchal and matriarchal giants and patriarchal and matriarchal gods. So that's going to be a lot of what's in the sort of connection, and there's going to be ones that have a standard that are more of a warrior class as well. So, you know, if, let's say if you look up uh, the coat of arms that goes back to Ireland for Crowley, and it's a bit different name, and somebody wants that, I'll send it to them. Just get a hold of me through my website. I, any documents that I might mention, that's how you get documents from me is just request them through my website. I'll send them to you. I have just too many to load up there. So, <laughs> so many. Yeah. And they need it by topic because I have that many, believe me. So, but anyways, that that's more of a warrior class set of coat of arms. And so if we look at the imagery of the animals that are on there, you have dragons, you have lions, you have uh, eagles, birds, the eagles. Um, right, and, and, and things like that. So it's really kind, and there's more than that. I just, there's just so much of it because there's a, a number of lines. So we can look at a dragon and understand that as a serpentine or seraphim angel. Right. And an offspring from that serpentine bloodline. But when you get into a, a lion or an eagle or a phoenix or whatever they want, it's not really quite the same, but it's also the same mystery to the black haired sort of giants. So there are four groups of watchers. Yeah. And one of them is a cherubim. And the archangels and the Ophanim is the other ones. And we do get Ophanim in the Bible. That's the ones in the wheels with the eyes. And that word for wheel there is Ophan, I am, is the male plural versus Gagel, which is also used but not describing the four-faced Ophanim within the wheels. Just in case anybody's checking me up on this. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jerusalem have four faces. 
That's but right. they only take one face when they're in the physical form. So you might see a sphinx that might have a male or a, a human face or a um, a lion face. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Caribs of uh, Mesopotamia and Syria, they have a bull or an ox face. Well, that's one of the faces of a cherubim as well. And you also have a lion face on a cherubim. So now if you're thinking about, well, wait a minute, there was like lion men of Moab. That's right. And the lion-like men of Gad and Arioch, one of the kings of the four giants, nations in the War of Giants in Genesis 14, that means lion-like. Um, wow. That's where those types of Nephilim would come from. So the dark-haired giants probably come from the Cherubim. And they're also a little bit larger than the red-haired seraphim giants. And so you can sort of start to make those kinds of connections. But that doesn't answer the unicorn puzzle. You know, you've got the dragon on there. You've got the bird face for the eagles and and things like that. And the tengu, which are bird-faced nephilim and, and priests of Southeast Asia and China. Um and there's a balba of the Kishamaya, or owl-faced, and they have one that's a branch called the House of Kamazots, which is the House of Bat in the Popol Vuh. And oh. you Google Kamazots, and you get Batman's outfit. <laughs> that's so, where it comes from. Yeah, that's where it comes from, yeah, as is as an ancient hero, a superhero, mm-hmm. uh, as I talk about first early on in, in, in book one. But the Cherubim, they are depicted also as warriors guarding Eden. They're also depicted as pulling God's chariot in the book of the Psalms as, a, as an allegory of the throne of God. And in Ezekiel 1, 3, and 10, the cherubim are there. And they pulled, they pulled the chariot. So there's a connection there between that watcher, some of the offspring, and some of the heraldry. Well, in the occult, and your people will know this, I mean, that single horn, the unicorn, it's kind of like a third eye and the ability to receive knowledge through it. And the cherubim had special knowledge that they provided that comes directly from the throne. And so that's one of the allegories. And a unicorn is understood as a giant horse that the Tuatha Dun and Anne would ride on, like you, you know, look at riders of the Shea, um, paintings and they've got a horn that's a metal one and they've got these fairy giants, Tuatha Dun riding them. But er- early after the flood and before they were rode on these giant horses with a single horn uh, into battle. Wow. That's the earthly physical nature, but unicorns are also understood as a, and they're, and they're chimera type animal. So there's multiple, so it's angelic technology that created them both before and after the flood. That's how they show up again after the flood. They weren't these goofy little things that were playing that missed the ark. They were <laughs> perverted DNA and they weren't called to the ark. For, for they, that weren't, they didn't have a spot on the ark, no. <laughs> but they're also understood in the occult as an angelic being. Yeah. And as such, if you look at the imagery of the Greek mythology, which 
depicts it the best. You have Zeus's chariot being pulled by unicorn white horses or just plain white horses and multiple gods having their throne being pulled by these unicorns. That's an allegory in polytheism for the cherubim. Wow. And so maybe that's what the chains are about then, that they're pulling the other Nephilim. Um, cause it's, it's uh, the, the flying yeah, horse well, appears in, um, it, it was quite popular, kind of made a, a comeback in Nazi Germany as well. Not so much with the horn, but you know, that magical horse. Yeah. Well. well, in Gargantua and in, um, you know, even the Persian kings, they had these large white horses that were giant horses that were pulling their chariots. One was emptied for the God and one was for the representative or the king. And of course, Darius and all of those Persian kings were Aryans. They take their genealogies back through the Aryan bloodline and dark haired as part of that other race. And they were looked upon as giants as kings. And so you see that sort of, sort of imagery that is, is there. So yeah, you have, uh, you have this this understanding both from a physical nature and from an angelic nature, and then you get unicorn showing up in the King James Version Bible, written by you know uh, the the elite of the time to translate it into English, uh, in into Baconian English for the mighty Prince James. And that's what it says. The mighty, of course, mighty is Gibberim, right? The one who exercised the divine right to rule from the Balim off of Mount Hermon. And you got unicorn that shows up several times in the King James, King James Version Bible that's associated with creating an empire where it's used and Mount, and or Mount Hermon. That's not a coincidence, and that that word should not be translated as unicorn, because it's the Hebrew word ram, and it means um, a wild bull. It has nothing to do with a horse. And only in the King James Version Bible is it translated as a unicorn, and he is the unicorn dynasty uh, who was trying to create a world-dominated commonwealth or an antichrist-type figure, just as antichrist is the little horn in the allegory of Daniel um, 7 and 8. Wow. And, of course, a single unicorn. That's incredible, just putting those connections together. Thank you, Gary. And I, w- I would love to just ask as we, we finish up, I could ask you questions all day. I'm like, what about this? What about this? Um what do we have in store? Like what's your take on where we are in end times? And, you know, I I feel like, you know, we can kind of look at like what people like Alistair Crowley have said about, you know, the patriarchal going out and, you know, the goddess worship coming in, which I think we can see happening around us right now, you know, even within the church with the queen of heaven and Mary worship, et cetera. Um, But yeah, I I would just love to hear what you sort of see in terms of the prophecies at this time and where we're at. Yeah, we get some specific things that we can uh, rely on. And my approach is I put everything around what Jesus said, not vice versa. And not only is the spirit of prophecy, I mean, all prophecy comes from the word. He is the word. And he is Jehovah of the Elohim or the Logos Theos, the word of God. 
the cognate term in the New Testament. So people say, well, can you put revelation around what Jesus said? Of course you can, because that's the testimony of Jesus given to the angel to be given to John to deliver to the churches. It's his testimony. It has to match perfectly. And, of course, it does. If That's where your conflicts disappear is going to uh, putting everything around what Jesus said and don't reimagine what he said. And uh, don't put what don't define prophecy by what another prophet said. You put all of his all the prophets around what Jesus said and it, all the conflicts go away. So where are we in 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 end time prophecy? I think um, I think we're probably in the fig tree generation, and that's one of the overarching signs: days of Noah, fig tree generation, and sorrows. Uh, they give you context for uh, all of the disasters and all the events that have to happen in this generation, because heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus's words will never pass away. It will all happen in one generation. So the next question is, is, is how long is a generation? And you get 40 years in the time of the Exodus, this generation in the wilderness. You get 70 years in the book of Psalms and 120 years in Genesis 6-3 in the creation of the giants and the preamble to the flood story that limits that immortal spirit in a physical body to 120 years which is why you have disembodied spirits because the bodies are going to die. Um, and so, and that's the Nephilim spirits and the uh, Raphaim spirits, not human spirits because those sleep and they go back to heaven. Um, so we understand there's a difference. So all of the rituals on reincarnation and the things they teach in the mysteries, it's all about information for this counterfeit spirit to manage their way after their physical body dies. Um, but I, I, I digress. So we're in the fig tree generation. And next question gets to be is, well, if we are in the fig tree generation, and it could be up to 120 years, but it could be less. Then when does that start? And some people say it's in 1947 with the Declaration of the Independence of Israel, which is good. But if it was sort of 70 years or 40 years, that would sort of preclude that generation, but not 120. But there's a clear sign that's important um, that is required, not just that the fig tree not just that the fig nation, the southern kingdom of Judah, is in the covenant land, but the epicenter of end-time prophecy is the southern kingdom Judah recontrolling Jerusalem city, which happens in 1967. So both of those are in place by then. So if if I was looking for a countdown start, and my speculation would be 1967 is the start of that, so that precludes 40 years because we're kind of by that now. Uh, and it's more like 70 years or 120 years. And it doesn't have to go to the full extent of either. So what we're seeing is the sorrows. And the sorrows have four, perhaps five uh, types of catastrophes. One is earthquakes. Um, and as Luke talks about a surging of the seas, um, you have Wars and rumors of war, you have famine and you have pestilence. 
And I think we're just starting to see those get stronger. And they're not all working yet together. And these are all, I think, contrived catastrophes. This is what the polytheist world is trying to do, is to try and destroy humankind from the face of the earth, and that these disembodied spirits will inherit the new age through destruction and the rising of the phoenix through the ashes in a regenerated uh, renewal of the earth, just as Shiva is the destroyer god, which is Abaddon and Apollyon, and that you you get recreation through destruction. So the imagery sort of comes together in terms of the agenda that, that they're on. So we're seeing these catastrophes get stronger, and they'll hit 25% destruction of the world, depopulation of the world, at the sale judgments. But it's not there. But it's going to seem like Armageddon. And even some of the royals are going to be hiding in caves or in the earth in whatever structures that they've built there. And I know in every location of a polytheist temple and Masonic temple and anything part of the organization, they build underground bunkers and tunnels in every town all over the world. They'll be hiding in their caves. Um, thinking that this is the day of the Lord, but it's yet to come. The trumpets will be 33%. And then the bold judgments that come in the year of the Lord's wrath, in the last year of the last seven, um, would be a 100% destruction, which is what they're trying to achieve. Um, and, but God, but God and, uh, Jesus, Jesus steps in to, to stop that from happening. So, we're not at the seal openings. I really encourage people not to get ahead of end-time chronology because if we lose our credibility, nobody's going to listen to us. And we have to explain it to them what's going on and that we're going to see more pestilences. And if we're going to have more disasters, we're going to see more fam- we're going to see more famine take place. And if we're going to have more wars, there's going to be more of all of that. And the wars will increase, and the wars will increase in intensity, and we will think it's the apocalypse, but it's not yet. Uh, it's just, it's getting stronger. But Christians have a bad habit of getting ahead of end-time chronology, and they do silly things like saying he's Antichrist, and that's Antichrist, that's the false pro- They're wrong every time. This is rapture. And we have to be careful not to get ahead of end-time chronology because we have to be able to communicate to people so that they, when they start to see more things happening and then that we know that they're not going to believe any other way that they're prepared for that. And the deceptions that are coming are going to deceive the elect if that were possible. And it is because Jesus forewarns us of that, but he also promises us that he will deliver us from the time of trial. Uh, from the hour of trial and the wrath. So we know the wrath is in the last year and the time of the trial is an hour of trial. That's talked about early on in, I think it's in Revelations 3 um, or 2. I might correct myself on that for the hour of temptation. Uh, it's the same hour that's talked about in Revelation 17 with, when, with, with like mind or a hive mind. The ten kings will hand their power over to... Antichrist. It's in that hour. It's in the hour when the epistles of John say that uh, 
uh, or in the when you see multiple antichrists that's the time which goes back to the word horus which is hours in greek and the same word that's used in the first uh, three applications it's in the hour in the summary of the last three and a half years in revelation 14 after the first fruit 144,000 are in heaven, you get the hour of Babylon's um, destruction, which happens immediately after Antichrist comes to power because he replaces Babylon with his own religion. And it's the same hour of destruction that's described a couple of times in maybe three times in Revelation 18. And it's all the same word. That's the hour of the trial. So we're nowhere near all of that happening after in terms of that one intersection of chronology, and there are, are tons to support itself, and it has to, and there can't be contradictions. So we want not to be predicting rapture. Hope for a pre-trib rapture. Prepare for tribulation, because tribulation is different than the wrath, and we're just seeing the start of the tribulation as Christians. We're already seeing it in China. We're already seeing it in India and Pakistan and Africa. It's coming to our countries, and we're starting to see that now, but it's going to get much worse. And we're told that we're going to go through tribulations. So we need to prepare for it. That's that's so great. Thank you so much for sharing that, Gary, because I think there's – there's so much misconception out there and there's a lot of new believers, which, you know, I'm definitely in that category as well. And it's very, very easily to, easy to get led astray. And I love that you are so thorough and you want to make sure that everything's referenced and, you know, that it'll make sense. So I really appreciate that. Um, and I would love for you to share, Gary, just for people, where, like where is the best place for people to find you um, and your work? Yeah, so if you're interested in things like, how do we know the end time chronology, um, how I get there? I have a document on then the end will come. And I focus on the word end for Toda in that to, tell, to show you that it means a sequential order of events um, or the rapture. I got lots of doc- documents on that. But if I mention other documents or if you're looking for information, if I have a document, I'll send it to you or I'll just answer the question. It might take me three or four weeks to get back to you. Um, but I will get back to you. And you, the best way to do that is through my website, the Genesis6Conspiracy.com, Genesis6, the number 6Conspiracy.com. And you can go to contact the author, and that's my email. And uh, if you're going through the media stage, if it says contact Gary Wayne for an interview, that's my email as well. That's my website email of Genesis6Conspiracy at gmail.com. So pretty easy to remember, It's a, and it's the number six. And on the website as well, I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters of book one. And I have a generous uh, excerpt of all 90, or all 84 chapters of book two. And it's not quite as long, but it's still a lot. And, it's, and that book is specifically targeted at Christians. If you're new to Christianity, I would recommend book one first. If you're totally deep into Christianity, go to book two, but you're going to want to go to book one to get the rest of the story, even though, again, I'm not trying to be redundant. It's it's designed to be new material. But so much that's not in the Bible is in the other books in terms of the other cultures and things like that. If you want to buy a signed copy, you can go to the Buy Now page. You click on either book one or book two. Book two is only available for pre-order at this point, but you can pre-order with me. 
Uh, or you can buy book one and you can buy multiple copies if you want. If you want a mix and match, I'm trying to get the website to do like a shopping cart, but we're having difficulty doing that. Barring that, I'll get a notification and I'm actually honoring this right now, but I want it written up there if I can't get the shopping cart done, is that there's discounts for multiple books, but if you wanted to mix and match, you can't do that. But if you buy, if you wanted to buy, let's say three books, for example, um, just buy three of one, send me an email and tell me I want two of this and one of that. And I'll ship you those and you'll get the discount. And it's all the savings on the freight. So if I can put them into one package, I just pass those savings on. Um, and also on the website, you can not only get the signed copy, but you can, if you live in Canada, there's a Canada page. If you live in the U.S., there's a U.S. page. And then there's an international page for everybody else in the world. So if Amazon's not carrying the book or doesn't want to stock it and wherever you are, I will ship it to you directly off of my website for both books. On the website, you can connect over to barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, and amazon.ca to purchase the book. And also to the Kindle edition that Amazon offers. And you can do the same thing for pre-booking of book two but not for Kindle yet. That will Kindle will come out as we get closer to the production date. It's got a March 12th date for production, but we're going to beat that. I'm hoping we're going to have it actually printed by the end of January. It's at the printers. It's gone through all of the delays and things that are going on with shortage of paper, shortage of labor, shortage of printers. <laughs> um, but it's at the printer, so it's through all of those other hoops. And I'm, and as soon as I get the books, I will ship my pre-orders, and I'm presuming all the other online bookstores will also um, start to take the books in and fill their pre-orders. Well, that's brilliant, Gary. I, I, um, I think your next book I'm actually going to get as an electronic version because I use it so much. Like I, it's it's literally worn and it's like, you know, doggy yeah. everywhere. And I think it'd be so great to just be able to search for keywords because yeah. at the moment yes. I'm to kind of try and remember where I read it for survivors. So I, I, I would recommend that I have a Kindle version and I use it because it's just too much information. If I want to find something quickly yeah, uh, or, and, and all the places where I might've referenced that word yeah. or, or idea, then that's where Kindle just makes it so fast and easy. So, um, and a lot of people I know have both. They have like one for their shelf and then one for the quick searches. So, such a good idea. Well, I just wanted to say thank you so much for all of your research and thank you for joining us today and sharing. I, I know it um, will connect some dots for many people. And I would, you know, strongly recommend everyone, like if you're a survivor or a supporter, you know, it's such an incredible research to just connect the dots for us. And, you know, for me, it just made me realize, you know, it's not a class system or, you know, even a slavery system like what we thought it was in this world. It's a spiritual slavery system. And I think that's really key to us unlocking, you know, our, our true, you know, spiritual empowerment and, you know, finding God and finding Jesus and the truth. So thank you yeah. so much for all you do, Gary. We're so appreciative. Well, thank you for inviting me and invite me back anytime. Absolutely. God bless you.